Lord God, we just come today, and this is, uh, this is actually an incredible scripture, Romans 8, an amazing passage of scripture. Some of the best stuff, summary things, incredible things that you've put into your 66 books for us, written for us, for our encouragement, for our understanding, not only of you, but of ourselves and of our position with you. And I just pray this morning as we open up your word that your spirit would visit us, even as he is your church around the world, that he would empower the seed of uh, your word and that you would encourage growth where there already is some. Where there isn't, I pray that you would make the ground fertile. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. And in the end, we find ourselves falling on our face at the beauty and the majesty of your love, your mercy, your righteousness, your shepherding pursuit, and the fact that you love to find and give foundations to things that are lost. We give you praise that you are for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So day two, so while pastor's on sabbatical, for those of you who are visiting or weren't here last week, um, so for five weeks, we're actually taking the five nights. Well, Vacation Bible School was five nights, right? One, two, three, four, five. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And uh, each night had a theme. And so each week, while he's on sabbatical, I'm going to be talking about one of the night's themes. So this night, theme number night, theme of day two of our Vacation Bible School is... Does anybody remember that was there? Do you really? What was it? What was it? God is for you. God is for you. So the theme verse is actually out of Romans 8.31, which is, if God is for us, who can be against us? So the first, the first night was about how God made us. Remember last week, like God made everything out of nothing, right? And that he actually created everything and he continues to create everything. He's not separate. He's not apart from the creation. He's involved. He actually fashioned and made you and me. And he does not make mistakes. Even as he made Adam and he formed him in the mud and breathed life into him. Now he gave human human beings the ability to procreate. However, he was still involved and is involved in the creation of every single form of life that we have on earth. He is Elohim, the creator, and it's no different. So that was day number one, God made you. Day number two, God is for you. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. Everything today is going to be about the fact about how God is for you. I was actually looking this up and I was like, oh, you know, I'm going to go look at the Alliance Statement of Faith. And on the Alliance Statement of Faith, they actually have what they call the Alliance Stand. So I thought, cool, I'm actually going to share this. This is really cool because it kind of fits in with where we're going. So the Alliance Stand, which if you go on to the Christian and Missionary Alliance webpage, this is right above the Statement of Faith. It's also on the back. I put it on the back of the study guide this week, down at the bottom, underneath our mission. So here's what it says. The Alliance Stand. What the Alliance believes about God, how he relates to us, and how we relate to him is foundational in its teachings. The Alliance wholeheartedly serves God and the people of his world based soundly on the Bible. We live and die by these words and believe they bring the only life worth living, one wholly committed to King Jesus. Yeah, I thought that was like, oh, I like this. This is actually like something that, 
Like it was, you know, kind of like energizes. Like there's a, one of God's names is Jehovah Nisi. Do you guys know what that one is? Jehovah Nisi. It's actually the Lord who is our banner, actually. And this is like a banner. It's kind of like a banner thing. Like, yeah, this is what we're about. This is who we are. It's a banner. I remember one time in worship that I was actually like, you know, people would be raising flags and like running up and down the, the aisles and stuff like that. We do that at VBS too when we're dancing around, but we had huge balloon balls, but waving flags about how good God is, committed to King Jesus. We have a mission, and the focus is around this area of the Bible. We believe that God gave us a book, that he actually inspired writings, and that our canon, 66 books in the Bible, are filled with an understanding where he himself, through the medium of man, through the medium of man, that God, the creator, the one who has made everything and everyone out of nothing, has communicated to humanity through these writings. He's inspired writings, and that these inspired writings actually are the word of God. So that in the Alliance Stand, we say that we wholeheartedly serve the God who made everything and all of the people that he has made Soundly on the teachings of the scripture. The scripture is phenomenal. In fact, in the New Testament, it actually says that the Bible is spiritual, that the words of God is spiritual, and that we can't receive that truth unless God actually engages with our hearts. That's actually in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that he has a way of actually embedding it. And the Bible has phenomenal ways of actually doing this. Sometimes the word of God can show up and God just gives a single verse and he drops it immediately in your heart and and by the grace of his spirit, it transforms you instantaneously. Your entire worldview changes in a moment. That's the power of our living God when he takes his word and then engages our hearts and our spirits and our mind with the truths of his word. Other times he plants seeds and they actually stay in the ground of our heart for a long time. And eventually they form underground network structures of enormous amounts of roots and then begin to bear fruit in our lives. Humongous foundations where the grace of the Spirit actually engages with humanity and changes people's lives. And I'm going to even go so far as to say that we believe, and it actually says this, I'll cover this a little bit later, in 1 Corinthians, it says that God has elected through the foolishness of preaching to actually take his word into the world and then transform people's lives. And that's not about what I'm doing right here either, right now. That's not, the, that's not what it is. It's about you and me. It's about the church at large singing the praises and the truths of God that he's given us in his book to the entire world. And as that happens, seeds are being spread, not just on Sundays, not just on Saturday night, not just on during certain meetings of the week, but every single day, regardless of where we're at, regardless of what we're doing, seeds of God's truths are being spread. And sometimes people's lives are impacted dynamically in a moment. And other times the seeds of God's word grow deep and structure out and form an enormous foundation that bears fruit later on in life. I always say that I actually, years ago, 
I came here to Vacation Bible School when I was a kid. I was probably one of the worst troublemaking kids that was probably here, honestly. I don't even know who the leaders of VBS were that year. Um, I brought my, my mom had like a big, huge Chevy uh, Impala thing, and we carried like 15 kids in it. So I brought the most friends from my neighborhood to VBS, and I actually won, which, which knowing me, if I had like 15 friends from my neighborhood at Vacation Bible School, that just accelerated me being worse. Like, like I was probably harder because I'm like, all oh, these people are my friends, and that engages me more, and I'm going to be worse. But roots planted. Like years later, I didn't start attending church here until I was in 20s, until I was in 20s. So roots planted, don't give up. Don't, don't feel as if the word of God is going to fail in any way. In fact, the Bible says it never will. He sends forth his word and it never fails. So that's what this is all about, about a foundation. God wrote a book. And through his spirit, he's transforming human beings' lives, taking them out of darkness and into light, out of death and into life, out of hardships and difficulties and darkness that have no hope into a place where a hope will never fail. That's the God that we serve. That's the God who gave us this book. That's the God that we worship. So, point number one, God loves his son. He absolutely loves his son. Before there was anything ever, there was God. We talked about this last week, right? There was nothing at all in beginning except for God. God has always been. He is the existent one. He does not have a beginning and he does not have an end. He never started and he never will end. He always was and always is. And in that, there is community. We believe that God is one and that he is made up of three persons. And in those persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit dwell everlasting, every single attribute of God in the Godhead forever and ever and ever. Righteousness, holiness, truth, magnificence, glory, beauty, everything excellent, everything good, and love is in the foundation of it all, as well as his holiness, righteousness, and truth. And in the middle of that, he is incredibly happy relating in the love of the Trinity. In fact, the Bible goes on to say that he, now I'm saying this is really critical, it's not just one person saying this, I'm saying that he is saying this of himself so that we can understand it. He wrote the book. So in the book of 1 John chapter 4, this is what God says about himself. God is love. So in the midst of the beginning, in the midst of the beginning, there is nothing but God, and in the midst of the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is a magnificent, beautiful correlation of love. God is love. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. If you have love in you, not just humanitarian kindness, but a magnificent self-giving, self giving of yourself to something else, then it's because you have a relationship or are actually symbolizing the image of God that God has placed in, by the way, all humanity, even those that have rebelled against him and have not committed themselves to him. In John chapter 3, verse 35, it says this about the Father and the Son. The Father loves the Son, this is Jesus speaking, 
the Father, my Father, the one whom I have dwelt with forever and ever and ever, he loves me. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into my hands. I'm always fascinated by these passages in John, by the way, because he's like talking to people and they're just like, what in the world is he talking about? All things given into his hands because God loves him. I mean, isn't that crazy? Are you saying that God loves you more than anyone else in the world? He loves, he loves you more than he loves me? That's crazy talk. And then he's going to give you everything? Yes, God has. And by the way, this wasn't the beginning. This wasn't something that just happened to Jesus when he was 30 years old when he was talking about this. He actually existed in this relationship from the very beginning, before there was ever anything. In John chapter 5, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. What I want you to get out of this isn't just what Jesus has done or what he did, or although maybe the Holy Spirit will speak to you about the marvelous works that he's done in your life. What I really want to pull out of this is the first part. The Father loves the Son. It's repeated over and over and over again. It is not just something that he does. It is not, love is not just something that God gives. It's not like a card that he gives. It's not like a ticket that he gives out. Do you want some? I have, I have some and I can give you some of what I'm giving. When God gives love, he is giving nothing less than himself. All of it. If you receive his love, you're not receiving something that he put underneath a Christmas tree for you and that you unwrap and then you don't see him because he's far away. You're unwrapping him. It is him. He is the definition in the Bible of what love actually is. By the way, do you know where the first occurrence of love in the Bible takes place? The very first occurrence of love in the Bible takes place in Genesis chapter 22, which is point number two. The first occurrence of love in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 22. Interestingly enough, the passage where this occurs, this chapter also has the very first occurrence of the word worship and the word obey. They are all intertwined, every single one of them. They are like repentance and faith. Listen, if you want to have eternal life, Jesus said you must believe, right? So for me to have eternal life, I must believe that Jesus died for my sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day. He also said, if you want eternal life, you must repent. He said you must turn from your wickedness and turn towards me you must agree with what the bible says what god has said about you and me and that in that agreement you agree about your sinfulness and you turn towards god both are true but they are not the same thing both are true but they are not the same although they happen simultaneously this is critical you can't have faith without repentance. You can't have that. You can't just raise your hand or walk forward at an evangelistic Greg glory uh, thing and say, well, I want, I want God to forgive me and then your life doesn't change. But here's the critical part. If you have met Him, if you truly have met Him, 
your life will change on its own just through the fact that you have related with Him. So repentance is not a work that you make, even as faith is not a work. It is something that occurs simultaneously. So love and worship and obedience in Genesis chapter 22 also are three different things but cannot happen apart from one another. Love and worship towards Godhead happens simultaneously and also obedience. So in Genesis chapter 22, the first occurrence of love is when God told Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. And I want you to offer him there on one of the mountains, which I will tell you, as a sacrifice of worship to me. Whoa. That's crazy. I mean, I I can't even imagine that. Can you imagine that? I mean, and this isn't just like any son. This is the son whom him and Sarah could not have any children. And when he showed up somehow in physical form at Abraham's home and said, look it, I'm going to give you a son and you're going to have one by next year. Sarah laughed about it. Actually laughed about it. And God called her out. He's like, what are you laughing about? I can't have any kids. What are you talking about? We've been trying to have kids our entire lives. I, I can't have kids. You're going to have a child. I've made a promise to both of you. And they did. They had Isaac. And later on, God says, as a form of worship and obedience to, to me, I want you to take your son, your only son, the only son, the son of the promise. I'm going to, I want you to pack it up, pack up all of your stuff to offer a sacrifice, but don't bring any animals with. I want you to offer your son on the altar. I want you to put him on the rock, on the mountain where I want you to put him, and then I want you to sacrifice him to me. Seems kind of tough, and it is tough. In fact, Isaac asked, hey, Dad, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham, smarter than me, I probably would have just been like, tried to, like, I'm a conflict avoider. You know what I'm talking about? Like when conflict happens in the room, I'm like, I'm out of here. I'm gone. I'm like, I I try to Houdini out of those situations. I'm like, I was not part of this conversation, nor did I hear anything. I have plausible deniability. I was not there. So uh, he's like, hey, God will make a sacrifice for himself. God's going to provide something. God's going to provide something. You know, in the, in the New Testament, this isn't part of the message, but in the New Testament, it said that, God, that Abraham, by this time, believed God so thoroughly that his faith was so saturated as part of his psyche, as part of who he was. And look at he wasn't always like this, okay? Look at, look at Ishmael, if you know the story. He wasn't always this way. But in this, at this point in time, when God asked him to do this with his son, He believed in the promise of God so surely that God had told him, I am going to make a nation from you and it's going to come forth from Isaac. He believed God so surely that even if he took the knife and put his son on the altar and killed him and burnt his son as a sacrifice, that God would raise his son back to life. That's the kind of faith that Abraham had. That's the kind of faith that our father of the faith had, and that is the kind of faith that God wants you and me to have in his promises. 
and, and, we, and sometimes we struggle with the smallest things. The smallest things. Okay. Genesis chapter 22. So here we sit. Sin created a whole lot of barriers, right, between us and God. When Adam ate that piece of fruit, it cre- sin created some barriers between you personally and the creator Elohim who made you. There are barriers, okay? In humanity, there are barriers that need to be overcome. They have to be crossed if we want to get back into... The word is reconciled, but I like be brought back into harmony. I want to be brought back into harmony. One of the coolest things, one of the coolest illustrations, and I can't do it, someone with a piano could probably do this, of harmony. Harmony is like scientific. You know what I'm talking about? It's beautiful when it's done right. When, har- when singers harmonize or musicians harmonize, when it's done wrong, even if you're not a musician, you're like, dude, something's not right. Something is not right. Someone is hitting something that is not har- harmonizing. And one guy actually took uh, a piano and he, he lifted the hammers on the piano strings, you know, like he took a C chord and then, uh, and then actually he hit, he hit the major chords, the harmonic chords, uh, strings, and then he muted them, and you could still hear the harmonies resonating in the C string. You can hear them, even though they were muted. Harmony. I thought it was interesting, too, that major chords primarily are made up of a three, are primarily made up of three. I'm just saying, there's something to music and the Lord. There's something there that's going on. But he wants to bring us back into harmony, and there's some barriers that we have. What would you say are some of the biggest barriers between you and him? Between you and him. And there are several of them. Actually, there's a lot. The Bible talks about them. I don't have time to go through them all. But let's just talk from the standpoint that we haven't been reconciled to God yet. Because we still have barriers, although most of them have been removed, and they're pseudo-barriers in faith. before we actually had our sins forgiven. Some people would say, well, maybe it's my disobedience. Some people would say, uh, well, maybe it's God's righteousness and his wrath. His righteousness and his wrath are keeping me uh, apart because of my disobedience. So I have my disobedience and I have his righteousness. I have his wrath. Um, Some would say it has to do with God's holiness. And I'm going to put forth an argument today. The argument is going to be this. All of those are true. But one of the largest, and what, what Romans puts, to, puts together in Romans chapter 8, one of the largest things that God had to overcome was, was not His holiness and your sin and His righteousness. It was His love for His Son. It was His love for His Son. That was one of the biggest barriers to actually bringing humanity back into relationship with him that he had to overcome so that the other barriers which existed and were great, maybe not as big as this one. And I'll show you why I think that in Romans chapter 8 when we get there. One of the largest barriers, God, his love, eternally for his son who put jesus on the cross who put him there was it the romans pontius pilate 
Was it the Jewish leaders that cried for his crucifixion? Was it you and me because of our sin? My sin. We sing songs like that, right? My song, my sin. Above all else, he thought of me. He thought of me when he was on that cross. He thought of me. It was me. And the Bible says that the reason why Jesus was on the cross was because the Father put him there. The Father was there. It wasn't just him turning away. It was him there on the mountain with his son, sacrificing his son, doing exactly what he asked Abraham to do with Isaac, but he was invisible. He wasn't off in heaven letting the world beat up his son and nail his son to a tree. He was the one who was doing it. He was there. I'm going to put forth some scripture verses to actually have you guys check up on what I'm saying, all right? Isaiah chapter 53. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows Jesus carried, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Who was doing the smiting there? Isaiah 53.10, But the Lord was pleased. This one's, t- this one's challenging. There's somewhere along the lines, even though his love knows no measure for his son, he had delight and pleasure in the fact that he would crush his son on the cross so that he could bring humanity back into right relationship with him. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, his son, putting him to grief if he would render, if Jesus would render himself as a guilt offering for the world. And so in the garden of Gethsemane and Jesus is sweating drops of blood and asking the Lord, is there any other way? Is there any other way that we could redeem mankind other than this? Father, is there any other way? But not my will, but yours be done. And in the end, the Lord did not answer him to give him another way. There was no other way. There was just the cross. There was just the cross. Romans 3.25, whom God displayed publicly. Who put him there? The Lord did. He put him on that tree and hung his son between heaven and earth. His son, his only son whom he loved. Forever and ever and ever. Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. Do they have guilt in this? Yes. Can their guilt be forgiven, by the way? Yes. By who? By the one who hung on the cross. He is the judge of all mankind. And he can forgive them whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever, here it is, 
your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Who put Jesus on the cross? His Father did. His Father put Him there. He put Him there. Did He love Him? Yeah. 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 Intensely. Did Jesus die because of the injuries that He sustained? No. He did not die from the injuries that He sustained. He had the authority to lay down His life. And when the holy payment for our sin, the sin of all mankind, was completed, he had received permission from the Father to lay his life down. So when he said on the cross, it is finished, it was finished. How did he know when it was finished? I say his Father said, my righteousness has been satisfied. Satan can no longer condemn any of the people that find forgiveness through faith in you. You have satisfied the righteous requirements to forgive every single human being from Adam until the very end of time. The righteous judicial requirements for forgiveness have been met. He did it. Romans 8. We're back to Romans 8. So here's the kicker, right? In Romans 8, there's so much here. But in Romans 8, it says, What then shall I say to these things? Romans 8, verse 32, says again, by the way, I've given like four or five scripture verses that says it was God that put his son on the cross. And here's another one. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us, how will He also not with Him give us all things? In other words, if the love that existed between the Father and the Son from eternity which is who He is, is one of the greatest barriers to redeeming mankind, God crossed that barrier. That's the big thing. His love for His Son, and He did not withhold Him from us. All the rest of the stuff besides Jesus, all the things that come along with Jesus, all those things are small. They're the smallest things ever in comparison with the Son. And so the Holy Spirit is saying, if God gave you His Son, how also will He not give you everything else that you need? Everything. 1 John 4.10 And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And again, He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So back in Romans 8, we read the passages. We read the passage. I'm not going to go through it all because we don't have time. However, 
I'm going to actually list off some of the things that we get just from Romans 8 alone. Because the Lord did not spare his own son. He overcame even his love and sacrificed him as an offering for us. Since God did not spare his own son, he will give us all things. We've seen that already. I wonder what that means, right? What does it mean now? What does it mean later? I woke up this morning and I was actually in, my, in the medium of my like, waking dream state. My thought was about the man on the cross with Jesus when he said, Today you will be with me in paradise. It's coming. It's coming. It's not here. It's coming. We have in part, but not everything. He will give us all things. Because God did not spare His own Son, His own Son, He will make all things work together for my good. Because He did not spare His own Son, He will make all things work together for my good. Because He did not spare His own Son, we will be, those who believe, will be conformed into the image of Jesus. Because he did not spare his own son, we are justified. Verse 30. Because he did not spare his own son, we will be glorified. Verse 30. Because he did not spare his son, nothing can stand against us. Because he did not spare his own son, no charge can be brought against us, even from demonic, Lucifer-oriented charges, who knows who we are sometimes by observing us in the secret. No charge will stand. Because God did not spare His own Son, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ. Because God did not spare His own Son in tribulation and in distress and in persecution and in famine and in nakedness, we are more than conquerors. Because God did not spare His own Son, nothing can separate us from the love that has now been extended to you and me and to the entire world. From the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus said, take this cup away from me. The Father said, no, there is no other way. So Jesus said, then I will take the cup and I will drink the cup of your wrath for the sake of our love, your glory, your purpose, your way, so that your love can be displayed to all mankind. It's phenomenal. The story is epic. Because God did not spare his own son, Jesus said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Because God did not spare his own son, he said, I will never desert you and I will never forsake you. Because God did not spare his own son, he said, do not fear, I am with you. Do not look anxiously about you, for I am your God, I will strengthen you, I will help you. I will uphold you with my right hand. I don't get that kind of promise. A rebellious, wayward, arrogant, dirty, filthy, sinful human being get a promise like that? Because God did not spare his own son, that promise is mine. It's mine. And yours, if you believe. One of God's purposes is so that we can be bold We can be joyful. We can be confident. We can be resolved. 
of his nearness, even in the midst of suffering in this world. His promise is not a promise to escape difficulty in this life. Otherwise, everyone would be flocking to Christ just to escape every form of hardship. You just fed 5,000. Can you make another hamburger for me? I don't really want to work for my food. It's not a promise to escape difficulty, but a promise to boldly triumph in the middle of it. This is what we're talking about. Real life. Following Jesus ain't easy. In fact, I'm going to tell you that if you've made a commitment to follow Christ, if you've been following him for some period of time, you'll probably agree with me that following Jesus is actually, in many ways, more difficult than it is apart from him. It's more difficult. I have fights inside. I have interior fights going on that I never had battles with before. I'm like, what? What's going on here? I don't like that part of me anymore. That part that I used to love. And now I look at it and it's like a shriveled up nasty. And it's still there. And we have external enemies and the world and its systems and its ways. And then we have the difficulties of just life in a broken but beautiful creation. The fact is, is that God is for you and me. It is such an incredible foundation that Christ has placed for us. So, have you come to a place where you see the power of God and the wisdom of God displayed in the fact that he gave his son for us. And if he's given us his greatest thing, everything else comes along with it. Do you see it? Everything else comes along with it. So where are you at in your relationship with God? So I have a couple. I'm going to close with this. But I brought my exercise ball. So my kids like to play on this one a lot. I, I can't do this. So I have a, I'm an exercise ball because I'm in physical therapy for my shoulder. And so my physical therapist is like, you've got to get one of these because you've got to do these particular exercises. Have you ever tried to stand on one of these? Ron, would you be an illustration for me? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding with you, man. I'm just kidding. Hey, even though Ron probably would not stand on this in front of the church, my kids try and do this, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, I got, like, the other, even last night, Kate, like, I left the gate, we have this gate, and I left the gate open, and she's in the other room, and Aiden and I were in another room goofing off on our computers, and, uh, and all of a sudden I hear Reg, I'm like, who left the gate open? And the reality of it is, is that Kate would go into the other room, find my exercise ball, and then try and stand on it. She would do that. There's no, like she would, she'd, she'd roll it over to the edge, you know, and then climb up on the couch and then figure out a way to kind of roll onto it. Not a firm foundation, right? Not a firm foundation. But there's other promises that we have that actually provide good, solid engineering that we can climb up on and we can trust in them, right? Like I have faith in this, in this stepladder to hold me up. I have faith in the stepladder to hold me up. It's not going to collapse underneath my weight. It's rated. There are signs on it, you know, that are like, do not remove this. The FBI will come to your house if you do that sort of thing. And, uh, but it gives a foundation so that I can perform work 
meaningful labor, this, this, this thing's got some serious miles to it, right? Like it's been used to do a lot of meaningful labor. And I say, how firm is the foundation of the truth that God is for us? That if he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, that he's going to give us everything else. You want to know how, how big that foundation is? I'm going to argue that that foundation is bigger than the earth. Jesus says that the earth will fade away, but God's word will never fade away. That's the kind of foundation that we're standing upon. And it all gets back down to what Ron brought up or at the beginning about boldness. About boldness in the midst of your circumstances. Illnesses, loss, hardships, relational challenges that you're having. All of these things. All of these things are small things. Fix your eyes on God and on his promises that he's given you. Submit yourself to him. Stop trying to be the deity. Give yourself up in submission to him and rest on the foundation of his love. And in the midst of that, others have gone on before us and there's some in this room that have been following him for years. And I'm telling you, I'm singing the same song that they've sung and others have gone on with many more difficult things in life than what we have seen and they have sang the same song and this is the song. His love never fails. His promises have never, ever been broken. Ever. So we can trust in Him. So... Since the wisdom of God, through its wisdom, did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Jews asked for signs, Greeks searched for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. That's right out of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 through 24. So, believers, trust in him. For those of you who have not made a decision yet, none of these things I've talked about apply to you. None of them. You must be called for these promises to apply. I would be remiss if I left you with some sort of deceit that God is going to work out everything for you and you have not cast yourself on the Son of God who laid down his life for you so that the promises can be given to you. If you have not done that, it is not I, it is him who says, come to me. Cast yourself on me this morning. In a moment, just like I said at the beginning, your life can be transformed. In a moment, your life can be transformed. And all of the promises of God, yours, in a moment, 
You might not know him, but that doesn't matter. Because the biggest one is his love. The love for his son that he's offering to you and to me. It's the Christian's hope as well. We give you thanks, Father. For a promise that you've given to us. That if God is for us, who can be against us? And if you did not spare your own son, how also will you not give us all things? Help us to be bold. Give us a firm foundation. Crack away the deceit of our thinking where it's frail and strengthen it and bolster it with your truth. And in the midst as you do that, help us to be more than conquerors, whatever it is that we find ourselves in, not because of our own strength, but because we're following a conquering, loving God who has our interests at heart, who will never leave us or forsake us and is with us even until the end of the age. We praise you. And all God's people said, Amen.